Our text today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will be reading verses, or chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I have received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The seasons of in-between are interesting times in our life. Uh, I I remember in in this particular time in my life that you see up here when I graduated from seminary, I was living in one of these weird in-between times. I I don't know if you've ever been there, but where something that you have worked for and hoped for, for for a very long time, for me, it had been oh, I don't know, at least seven years that I had been working towards that day when when I would graduate seminary and I would actually do the thing I had been called to do. But here's the weird part about graduating from seminary is they don't just issue you a job with your diploma. I don't know how many of you know that, right? They They didn't hand me my master's degree and say, okay, and here's your next job. You have to live in this in between time. Right, I had completed something, something big happened, right? The, for me, the graduation from seminary was the culmination of my life's work at that particular point. And, and it was the culmination of what I believed God was calling me to do, and yet there was still this thing that, that I knew was out there. I, I had studied and now completed my study to be a minister in the church of Jesus Christ, and yet I had no church over which I had been appointed or elected or called to minister. I had a church. I went to church, but I was still waiting to see what God had next. Something big had stopped, and something bigger, I felt, was on the way. I just didn't quite know what or where or how, which made the waiting harder. If you've ever been in that point, like if you studied towards a degree and towards a career, and then you graduate and are waiting for a job, you kind of are working another job going, that's not what I want to be doing. So I was working at Starbucks. Working at Starbucks is wonderful and fantastic, and it was an awesome job for me, but it wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so I remember working, I was working at Starbucks just kind of thinking, what's next? What's next? I want to I be on to the next thing, right? I would have to get up at, you know, 3.30 in the morning to go to that 4 a.m. opening shift and go, man, this is not what I have prepared my life for. It's great. It's good. It's a paycheck. I like the people I work with. Serving coffee is fun, and it's a useful skill, but... It's just not what I feel I was meant to do. And it's not where I wanted to go. And so I was waiting and waiting and waiting. This, this living in the time of what's next. And I think that when we, when we approach our text today, that's where we are in, in the scriptures. Right? We know something big has happened, right? Jesus has, has died, which was huge. Jesus has risen from the dead, which is monumental, earth-shattering, life-changing for everyone. And yet Jesus is still around, and he's teaching his disciples. And depending on which gospels and which timelines you're thinking about, you've got roughly 50 days where Jesus is kind of just going about the business he was doing beforehand, teaching his disciples about the coming kingdom of God. And you've got to think that his disciples are living in this point of like, Jesus, what's next? Right? What's coming next? What's the next thing that's going to happen? Jesus, what are you going to do now? Right? What's the follow-up act? 
to resurrection. What's, what's this mean? What, what's the next thing that the church is to do? And in this time, and in this meantime, Jesus calls his disciples, as Matthew records it, to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. I don't know what mountain. We're not told. This is a mountain in Galilee. And so he gathers his disciples together on this place, this mountain in Galilee, and begins to teach them. Now, if we read some of the other gospels and, and, and Acts, particularly like in, in Acts and in Luke, the, the disciples have this like really yearning question of like, what's next? They ask Jesus, in fact, is now the time you're going to come to bring the kingdom to Israel? Right? So, so they've asked him, was like, what's next? Surely you're, you rose from the dead. You've proven who you are. And, and are now the time when you're going to make Israel great again? That's essentially what they're asking. You're going to restore the kingdom. We're going to be awesome and good. We're going to rule the the Near East, right? Things are going to be great. But that's not where Jesus goes, if you recall. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus calls the disciples here to this this place in Galilee where, where Jesus started his ministry, right? He started his ministry in Galilee and, and he calls him to a mountaintop. And when he gets there, it, it's crazy. It says that they fell down and they worshiped him, which is appropriate, right, for God. And yet it says some still doubted. We're not told what they doubted. Did they doubt he raised from the dead? Well, he was standing in front of them, so that's probably not it. I, I wonder if they just didn't know, like, is this the great thing we thought it was? Jesus, what are you doing? They, their, their, their belief and their faith is mixed with, with something, with questions, with doubt, with wonder, not fully convinced or knowing what's going on. They worshiped him, but some still doubted. I mention that because just this, it's good news for some of us who still doubt sometimes. They had Jesus standing in front of them, resurrected. They still had some things in there that they were working out. Jesus doesn't call them out on it. But what Jesus does do is he begins to tell them what's next. He begins to talk about the the effects of what it means for him to be the crucified and risen Messiah. Right? We spent the seven weeks after Easter talking about what that means for the church, what that means for all of us. But, But in this instance in particular, what Jesus says to his disciples is this. He says, all authority on heaven, in heaven, and on earth has been given to me. This is a pretty huge thing for Jesus to say and to claim. Now, Jesus has been talking about his, his sonship. He's been talking that he's from God. He's been talking about his divinity all along, right? We, we know that Jesus hints at this and talks about this, talks about his kingship, his rule, his reign, all of that stuff. But, but here in particular, Jesus out and says it to his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The only one who has authority and who rightly can give authority is God. Right? And so Jesus is saying that he has been given by his death and by his resurrection as the effects of that. He has been given all authority. What does it mean to have authority? Now, now it's important to ask that question, to think that question theologically and, and biblically about what it means to have authority. What, what I don't think it means, and what I think is pretty clear by, by Jesus' life and the way he interacts in life, is his view of authority is not that what I say goes, right? You will do what I say if you don't like it tough. That, that's not the kind of authority we want to talk about here. And Jesus has said elsewhere, and, and, and more than once, that, that the authority that God has and the authority of, that he has is not like the kings of the earth. 
right? The kings of the earth, they, they taxed to build roads, to build armies, right? When Israel wanted a king, right? God said, it's not good because he's going to conscript your kids to serve in the army and he's going to tax you to make himself rich. That is the authority we think about of the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, right? Enriching their own power by exerting forceful and coercive authority. What I think we ought to understand authority coming from a biblical perspective, particularly here, right? God has authority. God has the right to rule and to reign and to tell us what to do. But I think we ought to understand God's authority, particularly in the way that Jesus exercises it is God's authority comes as creator, right? The creator knows their creation. And so the creator knows how their creation should function and operate best and has the right to say to his creation, this is how you ought to go about things. Not because if you go about it this way, it'll increase my power. It'll increase, God already has all the power, but rather to say, this is what is best for you for the functioning and the flourishing of creation. And so when Jesus says all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, as I read it and as I think we're supposed to read it, is this is what he's saying. I have authority and I know what is good and what is right for the flourishing of creation and the created order. If God has come to make all things new, if Christ has come to make all things new, then Christ is uniquely situated to say this is how that works out for the creation and for the world. And in particular, he says and claims this authority because he's able now to say, this is what is best for you in advancing the kingdom of God in the way that God operates and rules and works in this world. Let's skip a couple slides there. And so what Jesus says with his new found authority, newly given authority, or at least newly claimed authority, is he says this. He says, go and make disciples. So when the disciples are asking Jesus, what's next? When the disciples come to Jesus and say, are you going to restore the kingdom? And and Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm here for. And that's what I'm going to do. What Jesus does is he gives them a job. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so I am using that authority to tell you to go. He's putting them into action. If, if what they have been doing all along in being with Jesus over the last three years in hearing his teaching has been learning, what he does now is send them forth to go and do what they have learned. Right? For, for me, being in seminary was great because I learned a lot and I'm a learner. I love learning. I would be in school for the rest of my life were it profitable. Or if it were my calling. That's just learning. There's a point at which learning should become doing. In the interim, after I graduate, that's what I was waiting. I want to put this to use. I want God to finally say, okay, you have learned, now go. And, and this is where we are with the disciples, is, is the, the disciples have learned and they have, they have sat with the master and they have learned about, about disappointment and they have seen him die and, and they scattered and, and they have been redeemed and brought back and forgiven and, and told that, that their job is not done. And now he says, you have learned all of this. And so I am sending you out to go 
and to do. Now I'm going to get a little nerdy here. A little, I'm already a little nerdy. I'm going to get a lot more nerdy here. The word there is not necessarily imperative, right? Imperative is go. It's go with an exclamation point. Um, you, you may have heard elsewhere that, that this, the way this is written in the Greek anyway is more like in your going. So, so there's kind of this distinction here between go, like that all of us are called to do what the disciples did, which is leave their homes, do all that stuff, and, and, and be apostles. That I, I think it's important to make clear that, that not all of us are called to go in the same way. Right, as we talked about last week, right, we are a body, we all are gifted in different ways. The Spirit has, has gifted us for the good of the body in different ways and the good of the world in different ways. And yet we go about doing the will and the mission of God in different ways. So there are some who have been sent, right? Um, I'm going to brag on my parents. My parents just got back from Guam because they work with, with crew. They were, supposed, well, they were supposed to be over there to to do a conference with teachers in their schools. They are called to go. My parents have been missionaries in that way their entire careers, right? They're called to go elsewhere. They go and then they come back and then they go. Some are called to do that. Thanks be to God. Many of us are here because someone went in that manner. But some of us are called to, in our going, make disciples, which means that we may not be called to stand in a pulpit and preach the gospel in this way or go to another country, but we are called to make disciples as we interact, as we love our neighbors, etc., etc., etc. That in our going, I, I think in, in this way, understanding it in our going this way means that, that we are not, any of us, exempted from this call. Some are called to go, imperative, leave. Some are called to in your going as you live. The best way I've ever heard this is that we are all called to make disciples. We just all do it different ways, right? Some of us work in a church where it's in our job. It's in my job description to make disciples. I mean, literally, if, if you read the manual, it is in there. Some people, some of you have been called to go and work somewhere else. And the idea there is you are still called to make disciples. You just do it in different ways and in different places. But we are all called to be, in our going, people who make disciples. Now, what's a disciple? I think this is an important thing to, to note. Jesus doesn't say, go and convert. Now, conversion is part of discipleship. But the way we talk about conversion doesn't always include discipleship. Jesus says, go and make disciples, which means there is a moment at which one turns their loyalty from, from themselves or from something else to Christ, right? I am dead in my sins. Christ gives me forgiveness through his resurrection. Thanks be to God, right? That's that part. But a disciple is a follower, which means that there's more than just saying, I believe in Jesus. That's a great thing. And that is necessary. But a disciple is a follower, one who follows Jesus, goes where Jesus goes, does what Jesus does, learns from Jesus, that we might learn to be like Jesus. So to go and to make disciples is to go and to make disciples for Jesus, followers. And it's important to note whom we are making disciples for. My job is not to make disciples for Mike. 
this mic or any other mic for that matter. My, my job is not to make disciples for the church of the Nazarene. I, I hope that won't get me in trouble, but that's not my primary purpose. I get to make disciples in the church of the Nazarene, but my job is not to make disciples of Phineas Brzee or even John Wesley or anyone else. My job is to make disciples of Jesus. I believe that a good disciple of Jesus would be a good Nazarene or a good Baptist or a good Catholic. I mean, any of those things. If we get the Jesus part right, the other stuff is a lot easier. And sometimes we get confused about what that looks like. Sometimes we get confused and and we see someone who looks a lot like Jesus. So we want to look like them or, or make disciples who look like them. But ultimately, they're not Jesus. They will always fail. Our job, my job, your job, together, our job is to point people to following Jesus. Which means that people who we associate with, as pastor people who are in my church, some of you don't agree with all my theology. You know that? I mean, shame, right? But I'm not making disciples of Mike. I'm not here that you be disciples of me or believe like me and not everything, but that we together follow Jesus. If it comes between Mike and Jesus, please follow Jesus. I mean, that should go without saying, and I think it does, but I'm going to say it just to make sure. Our job is to be disciples of Jesus, which means that my job is to be a disciple of Jesus. Your job is to be a disciple of Jesus. Our job is to be disciples of Jesus. And we work just to, you know, throw back to last week as the body of Christ empowered by the Spirit. We work together to discern the will and the way of God that we might make disciples in the world but we make disciples for no one else but Jesus. He is the one we follow. He is the one I follow. He's the one I want other people to follow, even if they don't follow here. We're to make disciples for Jesus, and that is an important distinction. And then Jesus says, you're to make disciples and you are to baptize them. If any of you want to know why I think baptism is important, there's a lot of reasons, but at the fun foundational and fundamental level, why I tell people they ought to be baptized, because Jesus said so. He just said that the mission of the church, the mission of his disciples, at the very least, is to baptize people. That that is part and parcel to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there's another distinction we have to make here. We're not talking about John's baptism. Now, this is not something we tend to get hung up in, but, but this is not simply the baptism of the forgiveness of sins, which is what John did, but rather baptism into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, into the, gosh, there it is, into the triune God, right? And, and again, this distinction is, is important. Jesus doesn't say baptism into the name of the Father and the Spirit, but he brings himself in there. He puts himself in there. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the name of the triune God. Now, I'm not going to get into defining the Trinity this morning. This is Trinity Sunday, by the way. In the church, it's when we celebrate and talk about the Trinity. And this is where we begin in the church, where in church history, we begin to understand God as Trinity. Because of texts like these, where, where Jesus says stuff that said, well, that's, we worship one God, and yet That's what's going on here. (coughs) Jesus says you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now this does mean immersion in water or sprinkled with water, however you want to talk about baptism. 
But I think there's something else at work in here, this idea of baptism, immersion in, immersion in the person and the work of the God who calls us. Right? It's not simply getting wet, but it's part and parcel with discipleship, right? What is the character and nature of this one whom we follow? The character and nature of God. The character and nature of the God who has revealed it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so, so that when we, we look at Jesus, we see God. And, and when we work at, at the Spirit at work in the world, we see, we see God. And, 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 and where we see one, we see the work of the other because they are dependent and interdependent upon one another and, and all one. And, and we want to be baptized and baptize others in this character and this nature of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. We want to marinate in that and baptize people in that so that we might be better followers of Jesus because he shows us the way to go. And the last thing Jesus says as he commands his disciples is to teach them everything that he has taught them to do. Now, this can be found lots of different places in scripture. We could talk about lots of different things. The only explicit command that Jesus gave his disciples was to love one another, ironically enough. And this one, by the way. Love one another. That's the last thing Jesus commanded. Of course, we, we see Jesus teaching a lot in, in, in how to manifest and how to live as people of the kingdom of God. We could go to Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those, those hard things that we read about where we say, I'm not sure I could ever attain that. Those are the things Jesus commanded us to do. If someone forces you to go a mile, go two. Give to anyone who asks of you, he says. Lend without expecting anything in return. These are the things Jesus commanded. If, if we want to know what Jesus teaches and commands, the hearts of his teaching, th- those are kind of good places. Sermon on the Mount type stuff. Matthew 5 through 7, Luke 6 through 8 in there. Where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And, and we study Jesus' life so that we can see the things that he, he, has, he has commanded us to do as, as, as we live our lives in faithfulness and fidelity to the God who has created and who has called and who has redeemed us teaching them to do everything I have commanded you to do. Another, another good point to make, he says everything I have commanded you to do. I can tell you things that I think are important. I can tell you things I think Jesus would ask us to do. But my main job is to teach you what he says. And then as we encounter situations that Jesus doesn't address directly, we work together by the power of the Spirit as the body of Christ to discern what is right and good and holy, as Paul says. But our job as the church, at least as Jesus outlines it here in Matthew 28, is threefold. Make disciples of Jesus, not of me, not of any particular person or party, of Jesus. To baptize them physically and immerse them in the person and the work and the nature of the triune God and to teach them what Christ has commanded us. 
typified, in my opinion, in love one another, but shown throughout Jesus' ministry and life as he teaches his disciples about the kingdom, the nature of who God is and what God does. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a difficult job that Jesus has given his disciples. It's a job, yes, but it's a difficult one. If you're like me, you kind of hear that and go, Jesus, that's big. I'm not sure I can do that. If we read about these kind of last words elsewhere where Jesus says, go and make disciples, go and (laughs) in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? And you hear that and go, that's tall. That is a tall order that Jesus has given his disciples. I mean, maybe good to attain for, but if you're like me, you're thinking that's impossible. Jesus, we can't do this without you. And that's really the point. We can't. We can't do it without Jesus. Again, in other gospels, and I'm departing from my text, but in the other gospels, right, Jesus tells the the disciples to wait, go, but don't do anything until you've been clothed with the power from on high, he says one place. Go and wait for the promise of the Spirit, he says elsewhere. Because Jesus knows, as we know, that the task that Jesus gives those 12 to 120 people, depending on which versions you read, is monumental and beyond what any of them, even that group, could do. Jesus knows that. God knows that. It's because we were never meant to do it alone. The church was never meant to do it alone. The disciples were never meant to do it alone. During the ministry years of Christ, he was sent, they were sent with his power and authority. And as he sends them once again, he sends them with his power and authority. Here he says, and remember this, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. When I came to study this text, I was thinking ascension stuff. You know, ascension where Jesus is taken up into heaven. And I, I, I'm almost a little ashamed to admit this, but I had to be reminded that Jesus never ascends into heaven in Matthew, at least not recorded. This, surely I am with you, even to the end of the age, is the last words in the gospel of Matthew. Now, we know from the other gospels, Jesus ascends. We know because he's not here physically anymore that Jesus ascends and sends the spirit. That's what happens. And that's what we celebrated last week on Pentecost. But, but the, the point, and I think what Matthew is trying to do in ending the way he did, and as God inspired him to do so, is to remind the church that the physical absence of Jesus is not the absence of Jesus in our midst. For he is with his people in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That was last week's sermon. Jesus says, I am with you. You do not walk alone. You do not go alone. He's saying, my leaving is not a bad thing. In John, he says, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, the spirit of truth will be with you. The counselor, another advocate will be with you always. The physical presence of Jesus is gone, but the presence of God and in Christ is here by the power of the spirit that has been let loose in the world, which gives us the power to do what Jesus has commanded us to do.
Let me tell you some things that I believe about that. I believe that because the spirit is with us, what we read in Matthew 5 through 7 is not something that we hope to attain, but something that Jesus enables us to obtain by the power of the spirit. I think it's possible to live in ways that are characterized by, by Sermon on the Mount teachings each and every day because the spirit has been unleashed in the world and given us the power to do what Jesus has called us to do. I have a very firm belief that Jesus does not call us to do anything that Jesus will not empower us to do. That him saying you ought to do this implies you can do this or I will let give you the ability to do this. That is my, one of my deepest, deepest convictions. That we are given the spirit so that the work that Jesus has given us to do, as tall as it may seem, is possible. As we do it in the power and the guidance of the spirit who God has promised to be with us. Remember, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. I would say the end of the age probably extends beyond in, in at least Hebrew thinking to the end of the world. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A, a reminder like, I will, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. How many, anyone else revert to King James when they do the Lord, when they do the Psalm 23? Read it in years in the King James, but the promise that Jesus gives is that we do not walk alone. The, the, the Emmanuel that was promised to the world is the God who is with us now. The Emmanuel who is promised to the world in the birth of Jesus Christ does not go away simply because Jesus ascends into heaven. God is with us, empowering us to do these things, to be his disciples in the world, to make disciples in the world, to immerse them in the person and the presence and the power of the triune God, to baptize them into the community of believers. And to teach and walk alongside as we do all the things that Jesus has commanded us to do. But it's not by work, not by power, but by the spirit that is alive and at work in us. He enables these things in us. In that promise, I am with you, even to the end of the age one of the things that makes the communion meal so important to me as I celebrate it is the constant reminder that the power is not in me and that the power is not in you but the power is in the spirit of God which is given to us as we are called in his name the name of the crucified and risen Messiah. And this meal reminds me of that. That God has already accomplished the work that is necessary. And that as we partake it, we acknowledge that it comes from him and him alone. 
And in taking it, we commit ourselves to the things of Matthew 28. As we take this, we call ourselves his disciples. And we take on the work that he has given his disciples to do. And so I'm going to invite us to take communion together today. I'm going to give a little bit more clear instructions so that we don't have the train wreck we had last week. The church is messy, but we can, we can help direct. But I, before I read the liturgy, I'd just like to say that, that we are going to once again come up. Um, Skyson will hand you, or will have the juice for you, and I will, have, I will give you a piece of bread after I sanitize my hands. And then we're going to hold on to it, and then we're all going to take it together. As an act of faith in Christ, of what Jesus has done in redeeming us, in saving us, in forgiving our sins, but also in a declaration that we intend to follow this master, this teacher, this savior, who is the hope of the world. The communion supper is a sacrament and a sign. It is instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which proclaims his life, his sufferings, and his sacrificial death, and his resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until he should return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Jesus Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing to Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to this table that we might be renewed in life and salvation and that we might be made one by the Spirit. And so in unity with the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And so we pray, Holy God, we gather here at this, your table, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners, and he established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to God in praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts that we might be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood as we partake of these elements of your body and your blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other and one in the ministry to Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This uh, is the meal given to the church, the gifts of God for the people of God. Uh, As you come...
Here's how I'm envisioning it. Let's see if this works. So we're going to come from this side. So if you're on this side, you may come to the aisle and come forth, get the drink, the cup from Skyson, the bread from me, and then go to your seat this way. If you're sitting on this side, go around the back and come up. Does that make sense? Okay. Like I said, I didn't give any direction last week and it was a little messy. Um, I'm okay with embracing the mess, but we can make it better in this case. All right. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. Would you come and receive his grace today?